0: All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, played a little bit of intro music. That'll be used in a point just a little bit later. I uh, just kind of want to underscore the kind of happy sound, you know, good morning. It's time to get the mind rolling. I'll talk about the words later. Uh, but yeah, just kind of keep that in mind of what that sounded like, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, good morning. My name is Ryan Roper. This is week three of Ecclesiastes. We're this morning talking about how the preacher, the main speaker in the book, helps us to understand and address the non-believer. So with that, let's pray. I'm going to use the words of Psalm 49, so if you'd like to follow along with me, uh, please do. Hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me those who trust in wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit for he sees that even the wise die the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling place to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Father in heaven, thank you that though we trust in you because of your son, Jesus Christ, you will ransom our souls from the power of Sheol. You will receive us. And we pray, Father, that those who are in the condition previously mentioned there will be called and will, be, and will answer uh, that your Holy Spirit would act upon them and that we as your servants would take your gospel to them ask this in Jesus name amen all right so this is week three last uh, the first week we talked about what is this book why was it put together or how was it written and by whom last week we talked about hey believer you are tempted to think this way so be careful that you don't because you don't have to And so really what we ought to do instead of reading this book like Proverbs, which we're very tempted to do because tradition's going to tell us that Solomon wrote this book, we ought to read this book like the book of Job, where you've got an intro that warns you you're about to hear some things that are a little bit shocking. And then you hear the things that are a little bit shocking that kind of clash with the rest of Scripture a little bit. uh, And then what you hear is at the end, this is the end of the matter, fear God and obey his commandments. And so it's the call back to remember that God is in control we don't have to think like the preacher is thinking in the middle of that book so rather we as believers should trust God instead of our own observations and feelings we're kind of brought back to that reality at the end of the book and so um, we're kind of now here where we're going to look at well how that's what it's addressed to us as the believer now how do we look at that from the perspective of the non-believer so I'm, we're in church I'm going to assume for the most part that believers are here if you're not I'll speak to you in a moment at the end um, and the Holy Spirit will be speaking to you this entire time uh, we pray but the um, why are we talking about this book it's in this thing we're going to enter into the mind of the non-believer we're going to take a look at the text and see how the non-believer thinks what I'm going to do is then I'm going to show you a couple of examples from popular culture to prove that yes the Bible knows the word of God knows what it's talking about. God himself knows what he's talking about when he reveals the human heart. And so that we'll be able to see expressed out in the popular culture, these things that, hey, this is what you're thinking. Do you see that? And then I'm gonna show you what that looks like. And mostly through the the um, the avenue of popular music, or at least music from my, uh, my youth in the 90s. Um, don't think that was that long ago, but I guess it really is. Um, and so it, again, lastly, as a part of intro here when I was sitting at my desk at work going gee why in the world am I doing this vanity of vanities why am this is a silly work I'm doing it's kind of monotonous and okay I'm going to look to the Bible for answers where do I find this discussion of vanity in our work obviously in Ecclesiastes and then I start listening to a couple of bits of music just you know whatever Apple music is going to serve up to me uh, which is a little weird I'm starting to listen a little more actively to what is said in the words of the music. Uh, More on that in a bit. Um, But that song that I kind of played as an intro came up and kind of a feel-good, upbeat, 80s throwback. The music videos kind of got some of those little swirly MTV looking. Uh, graphics on it that's kind of neat right but if you really listen to the words you're going to hear that that artist who wrote it is having some hard times and is trying to figure out what she ought to do or she and her bandmates ought to do to handle it and there's a lot of hand-wringing in that song we're going to talk about some of those words in a second and so I thought all right cool we are definitely going to study the book of Ecclesiastes and so just like I said we should guard against the way the preacher is thinking we're warned to do that in this book We should also be moved to compassion for the unbeliever who is trapped in that thinking and for them for us it could appear as vanity but for them it actually really is right there really is not a whole lot of meaning there if we are not going to go and die and be with christ but rather they are going to either die and suffer eternal punishment or uh, well yes um, or in their view they will just die that's the incorrect view, but on their view, they will just die and cease to exist. And so therefore they're going to experience a lot of hopelessness and we'll see that in just a second. So what we're going to do is I'm gonna look at two sections of the book. We're gonna look at a section in chapter two and a section in chapter nine. We're gonna see what the preacher is presenting for us there about where he is searching for meaning and where it actually leads and how he determines that or how he, de- you know, how he arrives at that conclusion. And then we're gonna show that that little bit of mentality from an unbeliever's perspective pops out at us if we're willing to look at it and we're gonna see that in popular culture. And what I'm hoping as I'm playing some of this music as we're talking about what this artist is thinking and feeling, it's not that, hey, you know, uh, I read a book in the 90s that said, hey, don't, don't listen to this, don't listen to that. It's the devil music, it's gonna make you think about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm not saying, hey, don't listen to this. What I am saying is actively listen to this so that what you're seeing is what the unbeliever is actually saying and that we as the believer can have compassion and for that reason, we must approach them and call them to repentance. So that's kind of the attitude that I'm approaching that with. So let's go into chapter two, verses one through 11, see what that says and then do a bit of a case study on it. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter two, starting in verse, verse one and going to verse 11. I said, this is the preacher talking, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter it is mad, and of pleasure what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with mind, with wine. My heart was still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold of folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it and behold All was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun So we see at the very beginning the preacher is going to test himself with pleasure and guided by wisdom in order to lay hold of this great folly and so That sounds a little oxymoronic, I suppose. I am going to be guided by wisdom and lay hold of folly and experience all this and just see if this is going to satisfy me. Um, And so what we are seeing here is what's called a gap. So some of the authors as they're looking at this are looking at what's called a gap or a juxtaposition, a two different ideas that are held in tension with one another with no apparent resolution. And that, as you can see, he's wrestling with that. We're gonna see this a lot more in chapter nine, but he's wrestling with that and he says, this is vanity. Remember, that means either, it could mean utter meaninglessness or utterly enigmatic. There may be a meaning here, but there I have no hope of figuring it out, right? And so he's going to look at these things and kind of test these two things in tension and his guided by wisdom, what exactly does that mean? Um, It's thought that, okay, if we're thinking this is Solomon, we're gonna think that Solomon really is wise and there's must be, we have to kind of baptize this or we have to sanctify this and go, well, he really wasn't drunk, right? He really wasn't totally engaging in debauchery, right? Well, I think because of the text at the bottom where he talks about many concubines, the delights of the sons of man, I think the English translation through the years has sort of cleaned that up for us for polite company. That's really not what that means Um, or it is what that means, but the tone of it is really explicit. This is not, to to not sugarcoat it at all, he really is engaging in some serious debauchery here. Um, He may or may may not be getting drunk, there's some debate on that, but I don't think there's really much debate that this guy really is entering into some pretty serious, like I'm wine, women, song, sex, drugs, rock and roll, that kind of a thing, maybe not the drugs because that's not mentioned. But guided by wisdom, what does that exactly mean? Well, it's it's sort of a worldly wisdom, it's thought. If this is not Solomon, then it's this worldly wisdom that says, all right, if you know this is vain and you know this is potentially enigmatic, meaningless, whatever you want to say, then hey, life is short. Get what you can. And that would be a conventional bit of worldly wisdom, it's thought. So you could take it with, say, Solomon's being guided by wisdom or that that it's possible. You could take it that way. The other way you can approach it is this way, where the worldly wisdom says life's short, live it up. And so what does he find? Uh, He finds that it eventually ends up in vanity. But, you know, to think, all right, fine, he's engaging in debauchery. Did that utterly ruin him? No. Uh, because at the same time, he 's building all this stuff. he's making himself gardens, parks, planting them in all kinds of free trees, making making himself pools from which to water the forests. so it's not exactly slowing him down that he's getting involved in this kind of debauchery. so he 's not utterly ruined, um, but he's at least still trying to satisfy himself in what way? Well, Um, As we're looking at that, if we're looking at some of that imagery, watering the gardens, doing sorts of building projects, uh, particularly the gardens and the water imagery there sort of evokes and like a recapturing of Eden almost, like the preacher in order to try and satisfy himself and address this vanity is going, I'm just going to recreate Eden. Maybe that's going to make me feel good. Uh, And so what exactly is he doing? If he is trying to recreate Eden, he is potentially playing God or maybe even trying to be his own God enough to kind of satisfy this desire or to try to scratch at this need for um, some sort of meaning and figure out this enigma in life. But in the end, what did it look like? So he's, this is reward for all my toil. I found pleasure in it. I think that's probably a very real statement. He liked it. But when in consideration with where he knows it's going, he says, I consider all that my hands had done in the toil, like toil, work, hard work, that I expended in doing it. Behold, all was vanity, either utterly enigmatic or utterly meaningless, and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So he finds that it's meaningless. If there's meaning there, you just cannot figure it out. It just doesn't understand, uh, and it's frustrating to him. So do we see this kind of struggle in our own modern culture? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we do. We see a lot of celebrity that have kind of gotten involved in fame, fortune, money, wealth, power, uh, and it's very easy to look at these people in a cautionary tale and go, don't do that. Don't ruin your life like so-and-so and point to them and scoff. But what if we take a look, a closer look at one of these people? Anybody know who she is? Yeah, her name's Mandy Moore. Uh, Mandy Moore exploded onto the scene in the late 90s, 1999 to be exact. Uh, I was 17 when she uh, popped up, and I'll explain how old she was in a moment. That's a picture of her in 2017. Um, She was part of, uh, she had won a contest, and that contest kind of allowed her to be a, a music star, kind of like the Mickey Mouse Club, and now we've, that's how we got Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. And so she came in on the on the hot on the heels of the boy band era and the kind of the girl band, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, but she was meant to appeal to a little bit younger crowd because she had a little bit more of an innocent flavor than Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera did. Uh, also, if you're familiar with uh, Tangled, that movie, she actually voiced Rapunzel in that. So if anybody's seen that movie or kind of knows that one, if you don't, that's okay. Um, but that's, that's who she is. So she was, uh, she put out some music in the, er, the late 90s. Um, and I'm gonna play a little bit for you. When I'm, I play it, what I want you guys to kind of do is listen to the tone of the music. Is it happy? Is it sad? Is it upbeat? Kind of listen to that flavor. The lyrics don't necessarily matter as much. I'll talk about those in a second, but just listen to how it's, um, how it's represented and how it kind of the feeling it's trying to evoke. Uh, and then what I'm gonna do is kind of just played the chorus the first chorus there so i'm going to skip forward Here
1: here we are here's the chorus
0: My phone. So what do we hear? Happy? Sad? What do you think? Happy music, right? Um, I see a head shaking, not happy. No? <laughs> so, now yeah, a little, very upbeat, sort of uh, fits with the time, right? There was just this, we're young, we're energetic. Uh, if you listen to the rest of the words in that song, the way I'll kind of explain it is it's very teen romance-centered. If you listen to the, uh, the whole album, Man, there's some stuff there that, man, you've read a little too much Romeo and Juliet. Uh, the star-crossed lovers, just we're gonna be together forever kind of stuff. Stuff that I would be um, now as a father, I like, I do not want my little girls listening to that and getting into that mindset. What does Solomon actually say in the book of Song of Solomon? Don't awaken love until it pleases. This is why, uh, because you have get somebody who's just gonna you know, take their mind to a place that's not supposed to go. This is the album cover for that song. If you watch the music video, which, you know, you don't have to, you certainly don't have to, um, the words themselves are almost nonsensical. She didn't write them. They were written by the, by the music corporation, I think it was Sony that put her out, um, and a team of writers did that, particularly to appeal to the young audience, and if you look through the words of that song, you're like, well, gee, the, the refrain goes, I'm missing you like candy. I kind of consulted my friend Clifford Stummy, who's got, who has a previous YouTube channel called The Pop Song Professor. As a literature professor, he's t- taking a look at some of the, uh, the pop songs, and he's like, dude, Missing You Like Candy, what exactly does that mean? The answer doesn't mean anything, um, because you, as the listener, can put on that whatever you want. It's sort of a blank canvas, and that sort of had an effect on her and an effect on other people. But that's the album cover. If you look at the music video, the words aren't so bad, but the motions she's doing and like the facial expressions she's doing, it actually pretty suggestive. How old do you think she is in that picture? 17, 18? So Any takers other than that? She's 15. That's a 15-year-old young girl right there. And in fact, she actually started recording that album when she was 14 and released when she was 15. Okay? So at this point, that girl's my sister's age. She's, you know, pushing almost 40, she released another album when she was about 35, 36, we're going to listen to that in a second. But what happened here is she was taken by a corporation and paraded in front of people and then Clifford took me or uh, showed me some commentary on that, uh, that album that said something like this, her fame is going to have less to do with how she actually sings and more to do with how she dances, how she looks and how many people she can sell seats to and uh, that's that's what that was all about and if you can imagine that being done to a 15 year old girl what do you think that's going to do right and she was pretty famous she's touring with people like the Backstreet Boys NSYNC and if I'm saying names that don't mean anything to everybody just trust me they were really big Um, but yeah now that's her in 2020 different look huh a little older a little wiser perhaps And so what I'm going to do is she released a song in 2020 called Fifteen. It's a retrospective on that whole time in her life. Uh, I'm going to play it, listen for the tone again. If you get the lyrics, that's cool. If not, I've got them. I'm going to have them on the screen in a second to kind of make my point. And again, I don't know anything about what she believes about the Bible, Christ, and God but she's clearly kind of struggling with this and if she's an unbeliever this is this is a real struggle with a real person that's kind of going on so let me play a little bit of the second one Way different tone, isn't it? That's about enough for now. What do we hear in way different tone, right? That whole album is about like that. There's one that's a little quicker and a little faster in tempo, but a lot more of a mournful mournful sound. It's still in a major key with a couple of minor chords. So you can kind of tell as a musician, she's sort of mixing things, trying to wrestle with what's happened. Here's some of the words. What you heard was, you know, a young girl up early wasn't old enough to drive, um, took a trip from Seminole County with her mother by her side. Next up, New York City, world was falling at her feet. She thought she was making music, but she was only filling seats. Here's from the second verse. Um, On parade for the radio station, so they'll play her biggest hits. Missed prom, missed graduation, no college in the fall. On the road with a boy band singing for the people in the mall. In kind of those words, she started going like, gee, what, what just happened? Right, all that fame, all the money that brought in, probably some of the good times, um, she's wrestling with the, the fact that there really is no apparent meaning for her, right? She lost her young years. So it's not exactly the wine, women, and song that was discussed here, but oh, by the way, that's probably happening around her. I guarantee you that happened to the, uh, the groups like NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys. She's touring with the boy bands. You know what the Backstreet Boys are today? They're here. You know, my wife reminded me, she goes, didn't you always say that you can tell your music career's over when you have a residency in Las Vegas? <laughs> I hate to malign them like that, I don't mean to, um, but like that genre, people will stop gambling and partying for a bit to go see the Backstreet Boys and then go back to it, right? Where's the meaning in that? Um, and so she's, all that wine women songs going on around her, I'm sure it had an effect, right? You can kind of hear that in her music, Um, The other thing, too, is that she was used. She was sexualized as a young girl. Like that 15-year-old, here's some of those words. um, Oops, I'll play the Dave Matthews band in a bit. That was huge for me when I was a kid. Like, they did that to a 15-year-old girl. They, whoever the they are, like, they were engaging in the wine, women, and song, and then they did that to her. So these bad ideas don't, don't just have consequences, they have victims, And she was one of them. And she's got the vanity that she experienced on her own, right? And so this thing that we see described in the book of Ecclesiastes plays out in real life. That's kind of what I'm trying to help people see. And it actually has a real and palpable effect on real people. And it looks different in any case, but in uh, in this case, this is what it looked like for her. So let's move on real quick to chapter 9. Turn with me just over to chapter 9. And this is another idea that's going to be in tension. Read uh, 1 through 10. But in all this, I, the preacher, says again, laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is so is the sinner and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath this is an evil that is done all that is done under the sun the same event happens to all also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and they um, and after that they go to the dead but he is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion, for the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments be always white, So this is sort of a really fatalistic thing to say. He's going to say things like in verse 3, the same event happens to all. Also in the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. The idea there is that this life is just madness, right? If all there is is this life, then who cares? It's just madness. And afterwards, you're going to die. And he sets up this idea intention because he's just describing just how bad this is and how fatalistic this is and how this ought not be, but he thinks it's the way it is and he's wrestling with it. And then he says, well, go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has approved of what you do. And he starts in chapter, or in verse 7 right there. It's not presented as a solution. It's just presented as a complication. So you've got this, you're going to die, but enjoy yourself. So you got that idea, intention again. Do you think you can really enjoy yourself if your mind is locked on the idea that this is all just going to go to waste? Really, the answer is no. So he doesn't present that as a solution. Hey, you're going to die, so just go ahead and eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. By the way, Paul says, "Do not be deceived. Bad uh, company corrupts good morals." So for the believer, keep that in mind. Um, so he presents that, but it's not a solution. It's another gap. It's another idea held in tension. You can't really have enjoyment if you know that this life is just madness and you've got this thing about the living dog, which dogs is not like the cute little puppy dogs we're talking about like the mangy street mutts. Those things are better than dead lions. The living know they will die, but the dead know nothing and have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Clearly this guy does not think Like I read a psalm previously with the same kind of a theme but we will be redeemed from Sheol there's hope there this man has none or at least he doesn't think he has any so that this is what I'm going to kind of present that this is the way the unbeliever is thinking right you know what is coming and you're going to have to lie to yourself to say that there's nothing beyond it but you know it's coming but you're gonna eat and drink and try to cheer yourself and you're not gonna quite get there and quite en- get, uh, have some enjoyment on it because you know what's going to be happening, okay? So now we're gonna take a look at another example from popular music where I'm gonna illustrate the same thing. Remember what I told you about with the, the sounds of that music before? Now listen to the tone of this, this song and we're gonna take a look at some of the words. And what I'm trying to show is that yes, this idea intention comes out everywhere. So this band, I was into this band when I was a kid. uh, And now that I'm actively listening to it, I'm like, gee, how did I listen to all that stuff? Because the eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Oh, by the way, on this same album that I'm gonna play a song from, that's one of the lyrics. (laughs) Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Um, Somebody cornered me when I was a kid and goes, hey dude, you're a Christian, right? And I go, yeah. How can you like the Dave Matthews Band? They're they're about nothing but wine, women, and marijuana. No joke, like you couldn't go to a Dave show without seeing like a cloud of weed, like hovering over the thing. I'm like, no, no way. No, this is about the music. I liked it because these guys were actually really good musicians. Uh, But actually, if you start listening to the words, you're like, well, wait a minute. What did he just say? So we're gonna get there, but listen for apparent tensions Anybody heard this song before? It's called Ants Marching. Kind of a bright sound, right? Sounds good.
1: I'm
0: going to play for a second. I'm going to fast forward to the end. skipped over most of the song. Talk about the words in a second. Just listen to the music. How many people think this is a feel-good song? Oh, did I get you already? Okay. fast-forward just a touch to the very end and we're going to take a look at the words he leaves us with so what's this song about here's our words Basically, this is about a guy who wakes up in the morning, goes through his day, has a couple encounters. One I think is a woman he's uh, either in a relationship with, one is his mother. It talks about some kind of remembrances he's have of being a kid, the eponymous line or like the line for the album's title is actually in this song buried in there. But it ends with the words at the bottom, take these chances, place them in a box until a quieter time, lights down you up and die. And I'm just going to let that hang for a second. Doesn't that contrast with the tone of that song? And so this is kind of what I'm talking about. We kind of see that we know this is going to happen, right? The, the artist here, Dave Matthews, who wrote the lyrics, knows this is going to happen, but with the tone of the rest of his music, he's trying to struggle with it, but in trying to have it a good time. And he's presenting this idea, and it's it comes from the text here. What this is, I'm not taking this and then looking at the Bible. I'm looking at the Bible and going, what does this say about the heart of man? And lo and behold, here it is right out in front of us for all of us to see. And if we're looking closely enough, we go, wow, that is the way it is. The Bible is describing how the unbeliever is thinking and wrestling with these ideas and trying to figure out what to do about them. If one last bit of an example, you remember the, the song I played to start with, it's called Hard Times by a group called Paramore. That band's going through some pretty serious stuff, but the music sounds really uh, upbeat. Here's the lyrics, and that's a picture from the music video. You got the little 80s VH1 MTV kind of color palette there, but if you look at closely at the words and the images that are going around it, walking around in my little rain cloud, hanging over my head and it ain't coming down. You know, hit me with lightning, maybe I'll come alive you know, trying to figure out what's going on in this life, even though juxtaposing it with some really happy sounding music. What am I supposed to do with this? I'm gonna stop that gif for a second so that doesn't distract us. So to summarize that unbeliever's perspective, the preacher is presenting to us a picture of life that is either enigmatic or best, meaningless and utterly meaningless at at worst pleasure fame money power is emptiness worldly wisdom is no guide to any kind of answers in this life some of the scholarship on the book is going to say something like any attempts to resolve this enigma right i got to think about it enough if you're an unbeliever and you're going to try to get assigned meaning to apparent meaninglessness is going to lead to a nihilism meaning like there's no meaning in life whatever i'm going to do what i need to do which then will in turn lead to despair And so this preacher is going to capture for us the despair in a world without God. You know, it's said that um, this guy knows there kind of is a God, but he doesn't really think that that God is acting in this life. Now what happens if you take God out of the picture? That despair is going to happen a whole lot faster. One last thing. One last example. Anybody know who this guy is? Yeah, that's Christopher Hitchens. So he's one of the four horsemen of the new atheist movement. Those four horsemen, that's sort of an ironic thing. That's uh, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Daniel Dennett. You can look them up later, but they have some pretty nasty things to say about religion in general. Uh, Hitchens wrote books like uh, titled, God is not great. Uh, he wrote articles such as the new 10 commandments. Let me read like a little excerpt from that. Um, he says, you know, what we ought to do is, you, you should um, do not imagine that you can escape. You can escape judgment, religious person, if you rob people with false, with a false prospectus rather than with a knife. Turn off that stupid cell phone. You have no idea how unimportant that call is to us. Denounce all jihadists and crusaders for what they are: psychopathic criminals with ugly delusions. Be willing to renounce any god or any religion if any holy commandments should contradict any of the above. In short, do not swallow your moral code in tablet form. It's the words of Christopher Hitchens, sort of invective against Christianity and religion in general. This champion of worldly wisdom that we see kind of presented to us, this is how to figure out what life is like. This guy died in 2011, but did he wrestle with these things? And there are people that would argue that he did. Two perspectives, one from his own words. He wrote an article in a, the magazine Vanity Fair. That's kind of ironic anyway from Pilgrim's Progress, the fair that is vanity. This article was printed just before he died in Vanity Fair. Pretty ironic. He says this, my chief consolation. This guy is struggling with esophageal cancer. He's lost his voice, he's got terrible pain, and he writes this. My chief consolation in this year of living dyingly has been the presence of friends. I can't eat or drink for pleasure anymore, so when they offer to come, it's only for the blessed chance to talk. Some of these comrades can easily fill a hall with paying customers, avid to hear them. They are talkers with whom it is a privilege just to keep up. Now at least I can do the listening for free. Can they come and see me? Yes, but only in a way. So now every day I go to a waiting room and watch the awful news from Japan on cable TV, often closed captioned just to torture myself, and wait impatiently for a high dose of protons to be fired into my body at two-thirds the speed of light. What do I hope for? If not a cure, then a remission. And what do I want back in the most beautiful apposition of the two of the simplest words in our language, the freedom of speech. So he's looking for hope himself in his end. He also had a friend, his name is Larry Taunton. He was a Christian apologist, kind of a controversial figure at the moment, but he spent a lot of time with him prior to his death and presented the gospel to this man. Taunton basically says, and I've got a long thing I could read, but I'll summarize it. He says something like this, Hitchens did not have a deathbed conversion, but at least he considered and reconsidered his atheism. He said he wasn't there at his deathbed. He doesn't think it's likely that he did have a deathbed conversion, but in a book called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, he said that he really did have to struggle with the big questions in life at the end. What does this mean, and why has this happened? And you can see him using words that an atheist would be totally foreign to use. Hope, consolation, The blessing of friends, the blessed chance to talk. And so is this vain in his eyes? Yes, but is he looking for meaning and trying to figure it out? Yes. So that even that brave atheist is looking for meaning at the end. So what are we supposed to do? If we look at um, sort of a gospel presentation, we are supposed to present these people and call them to repentance with the gospel. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 tells us that this is the where it says he has planted eternity in man's heart so even the preacher knows eternity is real though we try to deny it that's why we're searching for meaning Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 20 It says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You know God is real, but you suppress that truth. Therefore the wrath of a holy God is upon you. And that is why you think there is absolutely no meaning in this life because the wrath of God is upon you. Matthew five forty-eight. Jesus tells us that we are supposed to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. God measures us by that particular standard. In Psalm 130, chapters, or uh, sorry, Psalm 130, verses three and four, it says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? We can't stand before that holy God. But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. There is good news here. God is perfect, but he forgives. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now in Romans chapter 7, 24 through uh, through chapter 8, verse 3, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The preacher knows that there's a body of death. It says this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So even if you think you can be forgiven, you might even feel bad about your sin and think that God cannot forgive you. Consider then First John chapter three, verses 19 through 20. "By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything." Romans uh, again, chapter eight into verse eight. "Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death." For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. And lastly, first Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time and so therefore there is good news for the unbeliever in the face of this apparently meaningless life that meaning comes through jesus christ in his death burial and resurrection because though it appears that you have no hope he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead and so christian if we are looking at the non-believer well Sorry, I don't want to put mm, Hitchens' glaring face there. Sorry about that. If we're looking at that unbeliever, we ought to have compassion for him or her. It's said, I've heard a good uh, a friend of mine in this church say, Vegas is a weird town. The people in this town kind of wear their brokenness on their sleeve. And so if that's the case, and if this is their real struggle, and we can kind of take a, a look at it in a magnifying glass just a little bit, we do need to be able to present them with the gospel, looking for opportunities. That is our job because we have a living hope. They do not. They are under the the very wrath of God until such time as he redeems them, but they can be redeemed. So with that, that shows just how this book is going to describe the unbeliever to think, and what I want us to walk away from uh, from this is that we have that living hope. We must share that with the unbeliever. So I'll stop there, and uh, we've got about a minute and a half, two minutes-ish for questions. Uh, anything about the rest of the stuff I've talked about or any comments, I'll kind of pause. Yes, ma'am. Oh, the Josh is going to bring the microphone here.
1: Just two comments uh, on the Dave Matthews band. Mm-hmm. It was rather interesting if that his founding, it says one of the founding band members who played the saxophone, yeah. you know, he suddenly had an atv accident he died He was gone. that's right as quick as his song said Mm -hmm. and then that other guy attacking anybody to have any faith how how interesting providential he got esophageal cancer his voice was taken away him down too Mm -hmm. thank you ryan i really enjoyed the presentation and it's a little bit different perspective than I've typically approached the book with. Um, I think that there is a perspective that Ecclesiastes represents the way we think as humans, all humans, (laughs) Christian, non-Christian. I know because I could read the book and find very close identity to it, even as a believer, Uh, so on and so forth. Uh, I've appreciated especially Ecclesiastes for its ability to offer rebuttal to the philosophies of the ages. And you'll really look back at the past 20th century process theology, philosophy Mm -hmm. of Bertrand Russell, Alfred North Whitehead, uh, existentialism of Camus and Sartre, uh, deconstructionism. and uh, all three of those and all the philosophies before that are perfectly answered in Ecclesiastes. There is a biblical Christian statement that we can make that life is vanity, but that's only a superficial perception. And There's something far greater than that. So thank you.
0: I appreciate it, Ken. All right, with that, I think that's all the time we have. I'm going to close in prayer. Uh, And uh, we'll continue on with our uh, Lord's Day. Father in heaven, thank you, our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to your great mercy, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I pray, Father, that we will share that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading and kept in heaven for us. Father, I pray that the unbeliever would know your power who are being guarded and be guarded by faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I pray that we would be your means by which we carry that forward and that we would encounter those, um, that Ozan believers in our daily lives and know that they are struggling, Father, because they are under your wrath until such time as that you are redeeming them. We pray, Father, that uh, this church would be a part of that means. I pray that we would worship together this morning in the spirit and in truth. Bless Pastor Tim as he preaches to us and brings what your word says to us. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.